Welcome to Timothy Eden Memorial Church, a place for life. Connect, participate, celebrate. Have you ever had a direct experience of God? I don't mean when your kid was born or when you first fell in love or when you bungee jumped off that bridge you shouldn't have. I mean when God appeared to you and said something that was just for you. There are books that have authors that claim to have had such experiences. They have names like 45 Minutes in Heaven or 11 Hours with God. They sell really well. Because people want to know, is there anything out there? In addition to this life we're living, or maybe right in the middle of it. Now, some of those authors have recanted and said, actually, I made it all up. But they haven't given the money back. Now, there's a reason I'm suspicious of such claims, and you should be suspicious of them too. We Protestants have a cold view of visions. Sure, they might have happened in the Bible, but we don't trust them now. There's a reason for that. Our Protestant forebears broke off from Catholicism, and their view was that such visions were a Catholic thing. Appearances of the Virgin Mary or from saints, not really a thing Protestants major in. We Protestants experience God in teaching, in the sermon. That's why we have you sit in rows, like in a schoolhouse. We also experience God in song, in hymn, in worship. These things are so great. We Protestants started them, and then everyone else copied us. Almost any religious house, you'll find pews. You'll find song. It's kind of our gift. Visions, not so much. So if you're skeptical of such experiences, you have history on your side. Our Reformed forebears were skeptical too. And... So was St. Paul, who we're preaching from up until the new year. Paul had the best vision maybe ever in church history. He's on his way to Damascus to wipe out Christians, and he sees a light, and then he can see nothing. He's knocked off his high horse into the ground where he's blinded, made helpless, has to be led by the hand and fed like a baby. Even folks with little knowledge of the New Testament know something of a Damascus Road experience. You are turned around from the way you were going to some entirely new way. Paul, from a persecutor of the church to an apostle of the church. This story is why we Christians are saps for any good conversion story. We think God can get to absolutely anyone. Lots of my best friends are murderers. Yours too including Moses and David and Paul. God seems to delight in getting to and using the ones everyone else has written off. Now, you can see in this image, Paul's sword is useless there by his side. There are emergencies that a sword is helpful for, not this one. The man holding his horse can't see any of this. So Caravaggio here uses two sightless men to try and help you and me see something. Here's an Orthodox icon that depicts the same event. In this one, Paul is actively putting his sword down. He's going from a warrior to a preacher martyr. 
Now, eventually, Paul meets the business end of Rome's swords. Swords kind of follow him around in his life. Paul has one of the great visions anyone has ever had, and he doesn't mention it in this passage that Richard just read. Doesn't even hint at it. Paul helped found the church in Corinth. You can visit ancient Corinth today. There's a modern city of Corinth with public transit and movie theaters and malls. And then there's the ancient city that's been excavated. You can walk around it in about the time it takes to walk around our church. It's a little bitty place. So if you're a Christian in Corinth and you're singing in one house, they can hear you clear across town. People are in each other's business. This is more like a little village than what we think of as a city. After Paul left, other teachers came along and said, Paul, he's kind of pathetic, and he's not even here. Did he ever claim to have visions or do miracles? We have visions. We do miracles. We can tell you the new news from God. As for this Paul fella, I mean, kind of silly. Listen to us instead. Paul calls them super apostles, holier than thou, people who know more about God than God ever bothered to know. He kind of agrees with his critics. The great preacher at Harvard's chapel picked up the phone there one day. Someone was asking who's preaching Sunday, and he said, it will be the plumber professor of Christian morals at Harvard University, the Reverend Dr. Peter Gomes. And the caller said, you mean that short, fat, little nerdy guy? And he said, yes, slam. I mean, they were both true in a way. Paul could pull rank, take umbrage, and say, I had a vision so great, they write it down in the Bible, and they'll be talking about it thousands of years from now. And he does not. He says this, I know a person in Christ 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in body or out of body, I do not know, God knows. He was caught up into paradise and heard things that ought not to be told, that no mortal is to repeat. Yeah, I've seen some stuff, but I'm not talking about it. It could blow away your pitiful little visions, but I'm not using it. Paul was converted by the risen Christ himself speaking from heaven, the greatest vision ever, the trump card in this card game, and he won't deploy it. What did I see? Nothing I can tell. Paul has titles. He doesn't use them. He has visions. He won't deploy them. So downplaying vision starts already in the Bible with someone who had one of the greatest visions we know about. Instead, Paul says, I'm not going to talk about my visions. I'm going to tell you about my weaknesses. Some would say that what Paul experiences is mystical. That word just means a direct experience of God. All Christians are called to be mystics in this sense. We taste God in the Lord's Supper. We're bathed with God in baptism. We see God's face when we study when we serve. Churches that are growing especially fast in Latin America, Asia, Africa, tend to emphasize these direct experiences of God. And some people get even a little bit more than that. I got to drive a famous scholar around in graduate school. This was the apex of my academic career. I was chauffeur to someone who really had work. People would ask me, 
did he ever see things that you couldn't see? Hear things that you couldn't hear? And I said, uh, not that I'm aware of. This man has a reputation for that. But he'd read Paul, so he didn't go around bragging about it. In fact, he spent a lot of time talking to me about times when he'd failed, things he'd messed up. That's what Paul does. Yeah, I might have seen some things, but really let me give you my resume of failures. My mentor in ministry was in town last week. James Howell came to Bible study and met with my staff. And I was teaching in Bible study, and I said something I often say. You really haven't read a passage of Scripture deeply enough if you haven't found the laughter in it. I mean, the only God there is gets born from an unmarried Jewish teenager from the sticks to save everybody. That's uproariously funny. So I mentioned this. My teacher says, yes, and... <laughs> can't stop correcting me. Okay, yes, teacher. And you haven't read Scripture deeply enough if it hasn't yet broken your heart. That's true, too. Our God saves in a way that's joyous, funny, not at anyone's expense, not in a jokey, superficial sense, but in a delightful sense. And God cracks our hearts in two. We have great visions in the history of the church. Most before the Reformation in the 1500s, our Protestant branch off. Some tip over into legend. So you might have heard the one about St. Christopher, who was a ferryman. He would put people on his shoulders and then walk them across the river. It's hard to get this kind of job nowadays. So St. Christopher is ferrying someone across the river, and he feels him get heavier and heavier. And he looks over his shoulder and says, who are you? And he says, I'm Christ, and I have the sins of the world on my shoulders. Christopher means Christ bearer. Some of your Catholic friends have Christopher medals. That's what that's from. Another, St. Francis, he sees a leper outside the town of Assisi, and he feels a physical revulsion, get me away. And he thinks, wait a minute, I heard stories about this. That must be Christ. And so he gives him his clothes, his money, his horse. These were all actually his father's wealth that he was giving away. Gets you in trouble with dad eventually. And he turns back after he leaves the man, and the man's gone. Sure enough, a vision. Those are good stories. Now, some claim to have visions, and we should run far away, as fast as we can. So David Koresh claimed to be Cyrus from the book of Isaiah. Koresh, Cyrus, they sound similar if you're nuts. And he led his followers to a fiery death. There's a reason to be suspicious of such claims. What happens is if we have a vision, we submit it to the greater Christian community, and our sisters and brothers can say, yeah, that sounds legitimate, or no, let's go have an appointment with a doctor that I know. It takes the whole community to discern these things together. So, Arthur Boer's new friend here in Toronto tells this story of a woman working retail, and she's told to watch out for this one shopper who looks a little rough. He steals things. So she's watching him, as instructed, and she sees a shaft of light break on him, and he's bathed in what looks like heaven. And she says, I was told he was a shoplifter, but I think he might be Jesus. 
And so she goes on and treats other houseless people differently, better. That's how you know it's a vision, because it makes you new again in love. And Paul will have none of it. What he wants to talk about instead is his weaknesses. To keep me from being too elated, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from being too elated. Three times I appealed to the Lord about this, that it would leave me, but God said, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. You super apostles have visions. I had some, but all I want to talk to you about is my pain, my sorrow, my thorn in the flesh. Another phrase that permeates our language. People with no church practice know what it means to talk about a thorn in the flesh. This is what makes Christianity Christian. Not our grandeur, not our promises, our lowliness, our pain, and our sorrow. Yeah, we've had some visions. You know what we have more of? Thorns. You want one? I heard an interview with the great Madeline Lengel, children's book author. One of you sent it to me. She was asked how to grow spiritually, and she said, you know, the only way I've found to grow spiritually is to suffer. There's no way around it. And the interviewer paused and said, well, let's pray something terrible happens to you as soon as possible. I didn't quite mean that, <laughs> she said. Barbara Brown Taylor tells of a woman going to a monastery, and a nun asks her, why are you here? And the woman said, well, my mother just died. I think my father's an alcoholic. My marriage is falling apart, and I think I'm going crazy. And the nun replied, wow, dear, God must love you very much. And she pads away. <laughs> and the woman said, wait a minute, <laughs> doesn't feel like love. Paul calls this difficulty a thorn in his flesh. Prayed to have it removed three times, no luck. Here's my vision, he says. No horse, no blinding light, no great call from Jesus, no dramatic conversion. Instead, God says, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. All kinds of speculation about what this thorn in Paul's side might have been. Some people think it was something sexual. It's usually a good bet with Paul. But he doesn't talk about anything like that in these chapters, so I'm not inclined to agree. A Paul scholar I admire thinks it was an eye condition, that Paul's eyes were always red, that his face was always running, that he looked ridiculous, hardly a stately teacher. Yes, stay away from me, Mr. Pink Eye. Go teach someone else. Isn't it genius that Paul leaves it blank? That's why we're guessing. So we can insert our own thorn in the side right there in the blank that he leaves. And then we can hear God say to us, my grace is sufficient. My power in weakness. Now, it's not very comforting in one way. It's not spiritually triumphant, as Paul's opponents would say. But it is the mark of a true Christian blessing. Does it have a thorn in it? Does it crack your heart in two? I mentioned Arthur Bors before. He's the author of a great new book called Shattered. It's about his relationship with his father who abused him and belittled him and beat him. Only as an adult did Arthur realize his father had his own PTSD from being a refugee from Nazi-occupied Holland. 
Arthur was a teenager once, praying for help from God with teenage sins, probably lust-related, and he saw his ceiling open of his bedroom and two figures looking down on him, smiling. And he realized, okay, that's God the Father and that's God the Son. Great, now I won't sin anymore. Ceiling closes up, off he goes. The not sinning anymore part didn't happen, he says. He realizes as an adult, here's what was happening. God was offering him a glimpse of parenthood that's healing. The father and the son were inviting him into their relationship of goodness. This is what parenting is for. And finally, so what? Not many of us have such visions. I have not. Most of you have not. Some do. But Paul is skeptical. The one with the best vision won't deploy it. And it would have helped him to do so. His super apostle opponents say, Paul doesn't have any visions. All he is is weak. And Paul says, you know what? I'm going to tell you how much weaker I am than you thought. Because that way you'll know how good God is to use someone like me. Most of us puff up our accomplishments. We exaggerate what we've succeeded in. We shade what we failed in. They did this in the ancient world too. It's just a human thing. Paul reads this resume to the Corinthians. Five times I received the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I received a stoning. Three times I was shipwrecked for a night and a day. I drift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from bandits, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false sisters and brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, hungry and thirsty, often without food, cold and naked. Uh, that's all the good that this faith has brought you? And you want me to sign up too? St. <laughs> Teresa of Avila was bouncing around on a rough carriage ride once, and the horse was startled, and she was thrown into the ditch in the mud, and she just kept praying. Now, Lord, if this is how you treat your friends, it's no surprise you have so few of them. Amen. Christian faith isn't there to make things easier, to make things go well. It's there to make us like Jesus on his cross, like Paul with his thorn. So Paul continues his case for why folks should believe. What great act have you experienced, Paul, to give you authority? This is right before the passage you heard earlier. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. In Damascus, the governor under King Aretas guarded the city of Damascus in order to seize me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped from his hands. If this was a Hollywood movie, Arnie or Bruce Willis would have shot their way out triumphantly. Not Paul. He is humbly lowered through a hole in the wall. Not overly impressive. Instead of the blinding light, he tells of his basket getaway. Now watch how the history of Christian art depicts this. Here's a version of it. Paul, miserable, sulking, being let down in a bucket. Not exactly brave or valiant. You can see the Roman soldier clueless there. Here's another where Paul is sort of hideous in an even smaller bucket. But there's a pedigree for this escape. Noah and his family were set adrift in an ark. Moses, let into the Nile as a baby in a basket. 
Paul is in his own life-saving basket. Not on a war horse to conquer enemies, but in an ark, lowered to safety with no help but God. God's power is made perfect in weakness. In this next image, Paul is shown teaching from his basket. Yes, I am sitting humiliated in a basket. I follow a guy on a cross. What did you expect? So what's your power that's made perfect in weakness? What's the thorn in your side? I know you have one. It comes with being human. It comes as God's blessing. When you pray that it be removed, and you should, I'll join your prayers that it be removed. Sometimes God's answer is a difficult no. And instead, we get this hard lesson. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Say that with me. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Think of all the things Paul says here that remind you of Jesus. If I mention thorns, you can think of the one in Paul's side, or you can think of the crown of thorns on Jesus' head. Paul gets one. Jesus gets all the thorns. Jesus also prayed that his cup would pass from him three times. And God said, no, three times. Do you see what's happening? Paul is being transfigured into another image of Jesus. Just like all of us are called to be transfigured into another image of Jesus. Paul has his thorn and his Lord, and that's enough. We've got a lunch at church after this today, honoring volunteers. Anyone who's ever done anything around here, this is our chance to say thank you. And I'm struck, there is literally no church without lay leadership. I mean, we clergy couldn't find our heads without y'all. Leading at the church means nothing dramatic. You read scripture, you sit in committees and plan our future, you knit gifts for people, you visit our sick, you staff the desk. These are not heroic, glorious things. And there's no church without them. I realized as a pastor at one point, lots of my most committed people don't hear me preach because they're serving someone else. They're watching someone else's kids or helping someone find the ramp or the washroom. They're out of earshot from right now. When I preached in Brazil a few weeks ago, a woman came up after and said, I'm sorry I missed that. I'll listen to it online later. I was changing diapers. Well, God bless you. You can't change diapers online later. You can only do that in person. Volunteering is undramatic, necessary work, and so we say thanks. But you don't do it for the thanks, and you sure don't do it for me. And you don't even do it for your friends, although friendship does happen when you volunteer in a congregation. You do it for God. Now, in a way, that's mystical, but it's not exactly the third heaven. It's more like a thorn, a glimpse of God with a cross in it. Thank you. And if more of you want such a thorny glimpse of God, we can sure use you. Here's the secret, not just to the Christian life, but to all of life. If we have anything to offer others, it's from our woundedness, our sorrow, our pain. It's not from our resume or 
our accomplishments or the empire we build. It's from our brokenness, our neediness, our lack and sorrow. The great Leonard Cohen, there's a crack in everything. That's how the light gets through. And so God takes us, cracked and shattered as we are, and makes brilliance through us. I wish there were some other way, some shortcut around the thorn or the cross. But the only way to lead to life is this one. Let's walk it together as joyfully as we can. Amen.